This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. If somebody's listening who is a victim, either in a home or a church or an organization or whatever, the first thing I would encourage them to do is to find a safe person who doesn't care whether the system stands or falls, basically. <laughs> because if they're invested in the system, uh, you're not going to be sure how that's going to come down. This is a podcast about two things. Helping those with urgent needs in front of us today and improving the road so others can walk it safely in the future. Welcome to The Better Samaritan, the podcast where we're learning how to do good better. I'm Kent Annan, co-director of the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College, and I'm joined by my colleagues Jamie Aiton and Laura Finch to explore how we can more effectively love our neighbors from everyday acts of kindness to the most complex humanitarian challenges facing the church and society today. Dr. Diane Landberg is a practicing psychologist whose clinical expertise includes 45 years of working with trauma survivors and clergy. She speaks internationally on topics related to trauma, ministry, and the Christian life. Jamie interviewed her a few days ago. I wasn't able to join the conversation, but I've loved hearing the conversation. It's so timely for us right now. So really grateful that you'll get to hear uh, Dr. Langberg now. Well, I'm so excited today to be able to introduce Diane Lamberg. So Dr. Lamberg is one of the foremost experts in Christian psychology and counseling around issues of trauma, as well as around power. So I'm really pleased that she's able to be with us and uh, help us to understand some of the current events that are unfolding in our world around us. So, so welcome, Diane. Thank you. It's good to be here. So Diane, I wonder if maybe you could start by sharing a little bit about what first got you into this field and a little bit about your own story. <laughs> well, um, you have to keep in mind my age and almost 50 decades of clinical work. So, uh, five, you know, anyway, five decades of clinical work. So when I started, uh, there wasn't such a thing as trauma. There was no diagnosis for PTSD until 1980. I started doing things uh, in the early 70s with people. And there were very few females in the field. I was the only one in my PhD program. And there were very few in professional circles. So females who came for therapy would ask to see me because I was female, not because I knew anything. And the other thing that was happening is the Vietnam vets were home. And so I worked with them. And I'm a colonel's daughter, so they had a soft place in my heart. Um, and over time, as I began meeting with the women, I began to learn about things uh, such as domestic abuse. Um, sexual abuse, rape, all of those things. Then I was working with the Vietnam vets and it dawned on me that they all had the same symptoms. Hmm. And the way that I thought about it in my head was there's more than one kind of war zone in the world. So I knew about war war <laughs> as a colonel's daughter, you know, he was, he, flew over Normandy and dropped paratroopers. So I knew about the war thing. I didn't know about the war at home thing. Mm, how war, war at church or all the places that I thought were safe. And so it was my clients who taught me. And of course, I didn't know what to do for them because 
first of all, there wasn't a diagnostic category, and I didn't really understand what I was seeing. Um, and I think it was through work with the vets that that diagnosis began to take shape for people in the field. But I basically told them, I don't know what this is about. I don't know what it's like to be you. I don't know what kinds of things these experiences do to people. So you have to teach me before I can help you. So I started out as the student of my clients. It was an incredible experience. And what what were some of those early similarities that you noticed in particular about from war versus the the war at home types of symptoms? Especially curious. Um, I, I know in particular that you've written a lot about trauma related to sexual abuse. So I wonder what types of similarities you noticed early on. Um, overwhelmed, very jumpy, vigilant. Um, could be in a room with me, actually would tell somebody they were safe in the room with me, but they acted like there was somebody behind a chair or any anywhere. They just were constantly scanning, um, uh, very jumpy. So I, I, I got to the place where I learned if I want a tissue and the box is across the room, I need to say, I'm going to go get a tissue now. Is that okay? Mm-hmm. And that was both the vets and the women. Um, they weren't sleeping. They um, had nightmares. They had things in their heads that were like snatches of something, as opposed to, you know, if you say to me, tell me about such and such an experience, I tell you a story, or I have a beginning, a middle, and an end. They couldn't do that. Uh, They didn't have words for what they experienced. Um, So all of those things were in both populations, uh, you know, physical things, emotional things, relational things, fear. Um, and those are the things I saw match up. And, and so as you reflect back on the, those early times in your career, as you know, you mentioned trauma and like PTSD wasn't even necessarily a term or a professional diagnosis early on. But as you reflect on the last several decades of your work, curious how you've seen our understanding of trauma really start to evolve? Well, fortunately, it not only has, but it still is, which it needs to do. (laughs) Um, Because over time, I realized that as horrible as it is, if you grew up in a healthy home and you went to war and you came back, you certainly have trauma, which I didn't know to call it that. But if you were marinated in the stuff from the time you were six months or a year older until you left home, in which case you couldn't pick a safe person if they walked in front of you, so you continue to be marinated in it, what's happened to you has different and wider effects than just, quote, just going to war from a healthy background. And so, you know, there's a lot of talk today about complex trauma, which I've spoken on, and I think that that's a very important category that needs to be a separate diagnostic category. And, and for our listeners that may not be familiar, uh, when we use terms like complex trauma, could you unpack that a little bit and how that might vary from post-traumatic stress disorder, which is maybe something more people are familiar with? Well, in complex trauma, again, I think the word marinated is uh, an one that's apropos. It means that you are over all of your growing, shaped by trauma. And when you think about that with somebody 
again, a little girl or boy who's being sexually abused in the home for two decades before they finally get out. All the things we learn as children, number one, we hopefully learn that we have parents and they are safe. That changes everything. <laughs> so if you have parents who are not safe or you don't have regular parents or all kinds of things and you're abused and nobody names your feelings for you, nobody says, you know, when you're crying, what are you sad about? You know, they're just in the business of making you sad. So there's all kinds of self categories that never get developed and understood. Hmm. And um, complex trauma typically has uh, physical results. You know, the, the percentage of such things as autoimmune disorders in those who've experienced complex trauma is much higher than the general population. You know, you, you, if you think about an experience you've had in your life, maybe almost a car accident or something, and your heart's racing and you're vigilant, and the next time you get in the car, you're very watchful and fearful and all that kind of thing. We're talking about people who live in that state all of their growing up years. It shapes the way you think, the way you feel. It shapes the way your body responds to things. Uh, and you don't know how to quiet it down because there's no space that's safe or quiet. And nobody teaches you. Absolutely. And, and we see from the research that we know that that trauma really starts to permeate all aspects of our life, like what you're mentioning there. And you know, as I think just about recent headlines, that trauma has been everywhere, whether it's been the Me Too movement, if we think about what happened recently um, at the Capitol with the insurrection there, yes. looking at you know racial injustice happening in our country, how can understanding trauma help us to maybe start to make a little bit of sense about some of these things that are un unveiling around us? Well, if by us you mean... Christians and the body of Christ and things like that. I mean, part of what we need to learn to do is, first of all, reach out to the least of these. Number two, not think that a verse is going to fix marinating in abuse and trauma and evil. Um, you know, I, can't, I, I couldn't count the number of women or children I've been told they just need to forgive somebody who sexually abused them for 15 years. I mean, it's not possible. <laughs> There's no button. So there are many things that we have handled and uh, not bothered to listen or come to understand in any depth. And we have tossed things out like they're supposed to fix something. It changes everything if you really understand these things and what it does to a human being that you can't just talk them out of. And, and so, Diana, as you are thinking about our listeners and those that maybe don't have a mental health background, what's the thing, kind of the average person in the church, like how, how can we start to make a difference and how, how do we start to address issues around trauma? How do we set with people that are struggling? Well, the first thing the church has to do is admit that it's not only there in, in the pews, but some of the there was caused by the church. Hmm. like the cover-up of sexual abuse. So that that's a foundational piece of truth that has to be accepted. And, then and we have to admit that. Speak, speak more to that, please. Well, we deny domestic abuse. We uh, think if, you know, the wife acted differently, it wouldn't happen. Um, we believe an abuser's words, even though person is so full of deceit, they probably couldn't tell you the truth about the situation if they really tried. 
Mm. They've been practicing deceit. The same thing with sexual abuse. And who wants to believe that the youth pastor is sexually abusing kids in the ministry? Nobody. So they don't. And so what's happened for probably centuries, but certainly for years, uh, is that victims have no voice. There's no room for them to speak. And if they try, they're blamed or quoted a verse and expected to go on and be fine. So we've done more damage to victims rather than coming alongside. That's really helpful and, and wise words there that you've shared. So now let's maybe even get even just a bit more practical even of, let's say that one of our listeners has a friend who maybe works up the courage and comes along to share with them about uh, a trauma that they've experienced recently. What would you want the person doing the listening to know? That they are privileged that somebody who's afraid of everybody has deemed them safe Hmm. and that what they do and say needs to continue to be that way because it may be the first person in the other person's life who actually resembled Christ in some way. It was a refuge. They also need, they need to be humble. You know, this is, I, I, you know, I'm honored that you've told me I want to help. I don't really know what to do. I need to find out so that I can help you. No, I won't tell your story, but I need to go learn some things. But I'm willing to just be with you. You know, go on walks. Do things that have beauty in them, which is the opposite of the evil and trauma. And, you know, talk about the trees. It doesn't, you know, just being a safe person in ordinary ways is a gift. Absolutely. And, you know, hearing you share that, I think that is so important for us to remember, isn't it? That it's really us being there is so much more important than the having the right words of what we might say. That our presence is so in of itself a a healing factor. Yes. And a few words is probably better anyway. (laughs) From my experience, I would definitely agree with you on that. (laughs) Well, you you know, Diane, one of the things, um, that I know you've also written about, including in your new book, is about the impact of power and, and the connection between power and trauma. Curious if you could maybe share a little bit about that. Yes, the, the book is about uh, authority and power in the church and how it has often been used in harmful ways. Um, power, all humans have it. Basically, it means the ability to impact, to have influence. And I pretty much start the book out with the example of a newborn infant who's sleeping and then wakes up screaming because they're hungry and has the power to get two grown-ups out of bed who want nothing more than sleep. <laughs> <laughs> so that you know there's power even in the most vulnerable. They can have an impact. What we do with our power in that place does not tell us about them. It tells us about us. If we ignore it, If we dismiss it, if we call it something else, if we do harm in response to it, all of those things is a revelation of who we are and how we use our power. And I talk about how we deceive ourselves and entire systems um, when there is an abuse of power and the ways that deception works and the fact that power is displayed in multiple ways. I mean, there's 
obviously physical power, but there, there is verbal power and emotional power and power of knowledge and position and spiritual power. So, we, you know, you wrap all of these kinds of powers in one person and put them at the head of a church behind a pulpit, it's very easy for people to simply think this person knows what they're saying. Mm -hmm. The answer to that is, well, maybe. <laughs> and so there's tremendous authority in places like that. And, and in, in a spiritual environment, you can use God's name to support what you're saying. You can find a section of a verse to support what you're saying. You can silence people uh, with God's word and your knowledge, which is greater than theirs. And, and I think right now, when we look in the news headlines, we see just time after time of how those sorts of power issues are being mishandled and used to oppress others. What are some ways that we can begin to address those power differentials, especially within the church? Well, we first have to understand them, which is why I wrote the book, because <laughs> I, I think that people don't think of it as power. They don't know how to name things. You, you need to know how to name things rightly and wisely. And what are some options about how to respond? And we also, I think, need to be taught, and the book does this, about the difference between an individual with power and systemic power. You know, so you can have an individual, this happens in the home, you know, you, you might, let's say, have a father who is very abusive of the mother and the children, and everybody covers it up because he's rich and whatever, you know, the people who know something about it. The victims are left without care and all of those things. But what they, they also don't understand is the whole system is full of it. It's not just this man beats this woman. It affects everyone in the home. It affects people outside the home. It, it multiplies itself. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about power in the church, we're talking often about a system that will get behind, let's say, an abusive leader to protect the system, which is a, obviously a misuse of power also. So we have to think of it both individually and corporately, I think, in order to deal with it. Otherwise, we'll just maybe deal with the individual and the system will stay the same. They'll hire somebody mm -hmm. else who does the same thing without recognizing it. Right. And, and I can think of just recent examples of that, and we don't have to look far for, for those types of examples. So now yeah. what if someone listening has, say, found themselves at the other end of the system, that they are the person who have been victimized from the larger system? What are some practical things that they could do to, to start to respond to the injustices that have occurred to them? Um, so I, if somebody's listening who is a victim, either in a home or a church or an organization or whatever, the first thing I would encourage them to do is to find a safe person hmm. who doesn't care whether the system stands or falls, basically, <laughs> because if they're invested in the system, uh, you're not going to be sure how that's going to come down. Find somebody safe, somebody who will hear your story and walk with you as you make decisions one by one about what you want to do, believe is right to do, and how to keep yourself relatively safe when the system or the leader or whoever is enraged. Because if you just go to somebody who's abusing you, first of all, it's not safe. And second of all, it's going to be fought. 
So you, you put yourself in a dangerous place. And I would, I would remind him, going back to the phrase that God is our refuge and we're to be like him, we're to be like him to ourselves too, not just other mm. people. Absolutely. And so, you know, don't, you know, if other people are throwing you under the bus, don't throw yourself under the bus. That's not what it looks like. You are of value to God. And you're seeing something that's true and that hurts his heart <laughs> and he says is wrong. So you want to do something about that. Good. But you need to do it without throwing yourself under the bus as much as possible. I really appreciate all the great insights that you've shared with us. And I did just want to also kind of add to that, that for those of you that may end up searching Google, if you find yourself in a situation that um, where you're potentially in harm's way, do want to encourage you to think about going back and um, erasing that search history. If you happen to be in a situation where there's an abuser in your home so that they're not seeing that search history. So Diane, speaking of questions, I want to transition now to what we could refer on the podcast as our, our big five better Samaritan <laughs> questions. So just kind of some short, quick uh, questions about helping us think about what are, from your experience, some things that you've done to help you be a better Samaritan. So what's maybe something that has surprised you in your work? I have been surprised by the fact that when I went into a profession that was about caring for other people, which I intensely wanted to do and do well, and help them change or grow or whatever they wanted or needed to do, I was surprised by the fact that God works both sides sides. And that from his perspective, I was there for myself learning and changing just as much as the other person was. And how have you been learning to do good better in this work? Well, um, on one level, just professionally, I am a voracious reader, so I'm constantly reading about the topics and things like that. Um, I, I have a community of therapists in the practice, and so I learn from them and they learn from me. Uh, it's not solo work, I'll tell you that. Um, you get twisted up by it and harsh and all kinds of things. Um, and probably the bottom rock thing for me in that area is I'm up early every morning reading, studying scriptures. Um, I like I like a lot of the theologians that my staff refer to as old dead guys. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the Scottish, English, whatever. I, those are often the ones that I read. And so I'm just constantly seeking food early in the morning. And earlier in the interview, you shared some about um, the importance of humility. How would you define humility in the context of addressing trauma or power? That no matter how many trauma survivors you see, no matter how good your work is, the next one that walks through the door is different. And you can't assume you know. You can't assume you understand. You sit with each one like they're new. And you also know, in terms of your humility, that your ability to help them, your knowledge, all of those things are God-given gifts that are to be used on his behalf not because you're so terrific. And what's one thing you think could make the road safer, so to speak, for trauma survivors? For the church to wake up. For her to call things by their right name. For her to be more concerned about the name of Jesus 
than the building and the money and the numbers in the pews. Um, the road is not safe if the church is not safe, and she has not been safe. Well, Diane, you know, one of the things that I've really appreciated about you and getting to know from you over the years is that you've chosen to enter a place that a lot of people don't want to enter into. Of Working with trauma is really challenging. So how do you sustain hope in the midst of this sort of work? <laughs> well, I, I have to confess uh, first that I, I tried twice to quit. <laughs> <laughs> The second time, I I basically told God I was quitting. I wasn't asking him about it. I told him. (laughs) So at those junctures, though, I have learned a great deal. And part of what I have learned is that no matter how much I know, no matter what I do and everything else, I'm just a human being. And that's it. (laughs) And human beings need to be human beings. And part of what I learned at that juncture was, what, what are you sitting with, Diane? And I thought, well, I'm sitting with evil and darkness and destruction and ugliness and all that chaos and whatever. And then the question came, and who am I? Well, you are beauty and order and all of those things. And so I have learned to very deliberately seek out food that bears the character of our God in extremely ordinary ways. I love the woods. I love gardening. I love uh, music. I There are things that I consume that is a whole different diet than what I work with when I work with trauma. And they're not particularly spiritual things. I do that part too. They're just human things that we were created for. I mean, the woods is beautiful because God made it that way. And I just need to go and look at the trees. I, I watch the birds. I name the birds. I feed the birds. <laughs> um, and and that is how I have stayed. Well, Diane, thank you so much for taking time out to connect with us today and just to share the things that you've learned on your own journey through uh, trauma and how you've come to start to better understand and address issues of power. Before we end our time together, though, did just want to ask if there was anything that you have coming up or anything else that you would like to share with our listeners? Well, most of what's coming up has to do with the new book, Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church. Well, great. Well, we'll be sure to put in our show notes a a link to your upcoming book. And um, again, thank you, Diane, so much for being here with us today. And just thank you for the incredible witness that you have. Well, thank you, Jamie. It's a privilege and a pleasure. I was sorry that I didn't get to be part of this conversation, but I got to listen like you did. And I think it's so powerful that... um, if we get to hear someone's story of trauma, you know, it, it is a privilege to be in that spot and also know that we've been deemed a safe person, you know, to, to protect and care for and love a person who's suffered. And then also that advice we can give to someone is to find a safe person uh, who's experienced this, so that they can be accompanied and not isolated uh, on a path of healing. I also think it's powerful to think about how we um, you know, we need to protect victims. I think God would have us protect victims and not the institution or be self-protective about the church. Uh, Jesus's church will stand, um, but we want to side with victims uh, along the way and make sure we keep on being redeemed together. So uh, grateful for uh, this powerful conversation about how we can keep doing a good, better in people's lives. Love is just-
Thanks for listening to the Better Samaritan podcast. You can find links to the things we mentioned during this episode in the show notes. And special thanks to the brilliance for this fantastic music theme. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and subscribe. You can also follow the Humanitarian Disaster Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'll see you next week as we continue learning to do good better.